From AD 52 to 55, the Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus resulted in a new church that began preaching the gospel. During that time, a man named Epaphras was deeply impacted by the gospel and resolved to take it back to his hometown. He was from Colossae. Epaphras returned to his hometown and in faith began the hard work of planting the Colossian church. In AD 62, Epaphras visited Rome where Paul was imprisoned. He shared with Paul the news of a strange teaching that was rising up and threatening the health and vitality of the Colossian church. The Colossians were being enticed away from the gospel through forms of asceticism and the worship of angels. In other words, they were being taught that Jesus wasn't enough. They were being distracted with man-made religion. They were drifting with the tide of their culture. They were buying into the false hope that the Roman Empire would offer them ultimate comfort and security. Although Paul had never been there, he was deeply concerned out of his great love for the people of this church. Therefore, he set out to write a pastoral letter from prison that would remind them that God had already accepted them by virtue of their connection and identity with Christ alone. What those in the church at Colossae needed to be taught and reminded of then, we need just as much today. In the face of opposition, distractions, and false teaching, we are to stand in Christ against the flow. What's going on, LifeBridge? How are we? Good. Hey, I hope you had a great week. If you are, if you're a guest or if you just got drugged here by someone with the promise of a free meal afterwards, welcome to LifeBridge. We're really glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are in week two of a series where we're going to look at the book of Colossians. Last week, I really tried to tee this up and intro the entire series. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go to our website. You can catch up there. But what Colossians is going to do for every single one of us, it's going to ask you, what's central in your life? It's going to ask you, what do you believe is actually supreme? So the people that this letter was originally written to, they were living in a time and a culture where they were just picking and choosing whatever they wanted to believe from wherever. They were constantly being inundated with all these new philosophies and popular opinions and religious practices to choose from. And what, what they were doing is they were taking, I like a little bit of this, and they were taking a little bit of that, putting it all together for their own individual belief. Basically what they did was they, they pulled a Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if you know this or not, but Thomas Jefferson actually took scissors to his Bible. He cut out the things that he didn't like or agreed with and left the things that he liked and said, this is my Bible. You see the problem with that, right? Like picking and choosing only what you like and agree with. Well, that's exactly what was going on in Colossae. They were picking and choosing whatever they liked, agreed with, or could rationalize from this spiritual and philosophical buffet that was in front of them. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to our present time and culture. I mean, you can pick and choose whatever you want to believe or don't want to believe, and there is no shortage of options at all today. And at first glance, that sounds great, right? You have all these options to choose from, what you want to believe. There's a lot of freedom to believe whatever you want. That sounds great. But how do you know what's actually true? Like, how are you sure? I mean, we're constantly inundated with new popular opinions and philosophies and, and religious, religious beliefs. How do you know what's actually true? You know, one thing that we hear today a lot is, I, I hear this quite a bit. You're going to hear this. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Now, what that is, is that's just a fancy way of saying you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. And that's absolutely true. Like, you're free to believe whatever you want. 
And that's another great thing about living in the culture and the country that we live in is you do have the freedom to believe, but we've got to logically be able to look at a statement like your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth because logically that statement doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Like you've got Cora over here and she says, hey, this is my truth. And then you got Tyler over here. He's saying, no, this is my truth. What happens when those two truths are competing? Like, how do you know what's right? Is Cora right or is Tyler right? Now, I just randomly pick those names. If your name is Cora or Tyler, I am not calling you out. I promise. This is not me being passive aggressive. It's not at all. But how do you know who's right? You know, they both might be wrong. They could both be wrong. But if they're both claiming competing truths, they both, logically, they both can't be right. They both can't be truth because truth will not contradict truth. Now, we all have plenty of our own personal opinions and feelings and convictions, right? But our personal convictions and feelings and opinions, no, no matter how strongly we feel about them, doesn't mean that they're necessarily truth. My wife has to remind me of this more, more often than I would like. I've got my own personal convictions and opinions and feelings about whatever subject you want to talk about. But even though I feel strongly about them, I'm not going to adopt them as truth just because I feel strongly about them. I'm going to dive in and see what really is true. Let's dig in. Amen. Especially in the midst of a culture and a time where, man, there's so much confusion and competition and even contradiction. That's what happened in the Colossian church. That's what happened in Colossae. The culture was confused and contradicting itself. So I want to dive in and find out what's really true. So wherever you're coming from, what, whatever you believe or whatever you don't believe, Colossians is for you. That's why we're in this series. We want to just dig in and find out what truth really is. How many of you, how many of you like road trips? Who likes road trips, right? Yeah, road trips can be fun, like especially if you're in college or your early 20s. Road trip, yeah, road trips are great until you've got three young kids. Not fun anymore. It, it's not a road trip. It's a bathroom tour of whatever interstate you're traveling on. That's all it is. And every dad in here is like, preach it, bro. Like, preach it. That's all it is. But they can't, like, they can't be fun. They, especially if you're going to a place where you want to go. If you're going to a, 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 your favorite desti like vacation destination. If you're going to visit friends. If you're going to a, a part of the country to explore you, you've never been. Road trips can be fun. And part of the fun is, is that anticipation of getting there. So when you're getting ready, wherever you're going is, is going to dictate how you prepare for that trip. So if you're going to Scottsdale in July, you're not putting metal chains on your tires just in case it snows in Arizona. Like you're not doing that. And if you're going to Montana in January... You're not taking a convertible. You're taking something heavy with four-wheel drive and a really, really good heater. If you're going to Yosemite to camp, you're going to take the right gear and the right food because wherever you're going is going to dictate how you plot, plan, and pack for that trip, right? That's true for road trips. That's also true for life. Whatever your destination is will determine the direction your life is going and what your life produces. I mean, think about this. Like, where am I going? Like, what, what destination have I plugged into the GPS in my own personal life? Where's, where is it taking me? Am I okay with that? And what is it producing in and around me? Listen to this. This is Colossians 1, verse 3. We're going to go through 8. Paul says, We always pray for you 
And we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have, have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, bearing its fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it has changed your life from the day you first heard it and understood the truth, understood the truth of God's wonderful grace. Man, you've learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved coworker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Lots of talk about hearing going on. Does that ever make you nervous? Like when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I heard something about you. That makes me, that makes me nervous. I don't know if it makes you nervous. I'm wondering, did you hear something that's untrue? Like what did you hear? Like you, you, you were wondering, hey, did you hear something that, that isn't true about me? Or, or you're thinking, did you hear something that, that is true that I wish wasn't true and I, I definitely wish wasn't known? Like that probably makes you uneasy just like it makes me uneasy. And I think our natural response to that question or that statement is, okay, what did you hear about me? You flinch, you prepare for it. And then when the person says, no, 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 I, I heard good things about you. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought you'd hear, great things about me, right? There's a sense of relief. Well, in Colossae, they, heard, they had heard good things about the Christians. Good things were happening. And Paul writes this letter from prison. He's in prison when he writes this. In Rome. And he hears about what's going on. He says, guys, I hear about your faith and how it's legit. I hear about the love that you have for other people. I hear about the good fruit that it's producing in your lives and it's changing other people around you because people always hear about the fruits. They hear about good fruit and they hear about bad fruit. Think about it this way. Let me give you an example. If you go to a good restaurant, great food, killer atmosphere and environment, service is awesome, you tell people about that, don't you? Say, hey, you need to go to this restaurant, check this place out. You even start evangelizing for that restaurant because it's good. Since moving to Colorado, I have become a big fan. I'm all in on Snooze. Love that place. Love Snooze. Like, man, it, it, I tell people about Snooze. If you haven't had breakfast there, that's your loss. That's your homework for the week. Go to Snooze. Great place. I evangelize for that restaurant because every time I go there, the food's awesome. The environment's great. Service is always good. Even though the wait is always long, people wait for something that's good. But the opposite's also true. If you go to a bad restaurant, man, the food's just cold and there was a big nasty hair on your plate. Yeah, we've all had that experience. That's just, ugh. The environment's just lacking. Service was terrible. Whoever was serving you just had a really, really bad day. Man, you tell people about that too. Like, hey, don't, don't go to this place. Man, the food was terrible. I don't, you don't even want to know how curly the hair was that was in my food. <laughs> that, that, was, that was too much of a visual right there, wasn't it? My, my bad. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't just ruin your lunch. But you tell people about that experience. Man, don't go there. Because we tell people about the good fruit and the bad fruit. The same concept is true with people. What do people say about you? They say good fruit or bad fruit. They say hey, you really need to get time with this person as much time as you can because this person, man, they're the real deal. 
so compassionate and selfless. And she's such a great leader. He's compassionate and encouraging. She's so humble. He's got some really bad dad jokes, but other than that, he's a funny guy. Like this person, he always makes me feel like I'm the most important person in the room. Get time with this person. Do they, do they say things like that about you? Do people hear about your good fruit? Or do they say something like, you need to avoid this person at all cost. He's conceited. She's rude. So selfish. It's always about them. Just, just, you just need to avoid this person. Basically, do they say all the negative things that you would never want said about you? Do they talk about bad fruit when your name comes up? Now, you cannot control what people say about you. You cannot control the narrative. People are going to misrepresent you. People are going to have an agenda. People are going to talk about you behind your back. You cannot control what people say about you, but you can absolutely influence what they say about you. What you say to people will influence what they say about you. Not just verbally, but what do your actions say to people? That's what Paul's talking about here in Colossians. He's like, guys, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. He hadn't heard anything that they had said. He'd only heard about what they were doing. Like sometimes when we think of faith, we think that it's this, this blind, ethereal thought, that, that there's no action attached to it. It's just something that, that stays on our head, and that's it. But that's not the picture we get in the Bible. Whenever the word faith comes up in Scripture, whenever there's this concept of belief, it always implies action. Faith is never meant to be something that we just hold in this little box, we keep to ourselves, and that's it. It's never that. It's never meant to be stagnant. We're meant to do something with it. We're meant to act on it. James, who was Jesus' half-brother, he said, all right, faith by itself without works is dead. It's dead. Now, you are saved by faith in Jesus alone. You are not saved by your works. But authentic saving faith in Jesus will always manifest itself into faithful action. Always. I can say that I'm a person of faith. If I say that, the way the Christians in the first century would have interpreted that, the way the Bible would interpret that statement would be, I'm a person of action. Authentic faith is always a person that has selfless action because faith without works is dead. Now, how that gets played out, that, that discussion could be endless. God gives us a lot of freedom in how we get to play out our faith. You get to use your creativity. You were created in the image of a creative God. Use your creativity to how you manifest your faith into action so that it's not just superficial lip service. So that there's actually substance behind your faith. Get creative. There's just one guideline. There's one guideline that keeps us on track. And Galatians 5, 6 lays it out. It says this, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. That's the key right there, love. What's important is faith expressing itself in love. We could say it this way. Faith is proven by working itself out in love. It's got to get worked out. We've got to work it out. I can believe that I can bench press 400 pounds. I can believe that all day long. Some of you just laughed right there. I heard that. I don't know how to take that. I can't bench 400. I never have. I can believe that I can do that all day long. I prove it by doing it. I can say that I have faith. I prove it by love. Are you a person that just talks about faith? Or do you prove it? 
I want to be a person that proves it. Because people will hear about your proof. They won't hear about your talk. And your proof will impact other people in a positive way. It impacted Paul. Paul's writing this from prison. And it sparks this gratitude, this joy, this thanksgiving. He writes this from the middle of a Roman prison cell a thousand miles away. They were impacting him. Paul never got to see their faith in action. Never got to see it. He never even went to Colossae. He never met these people, but he heard about what they were doing and it pushed him to gratitude and thanksgiving. It fired up his own faith. He's like, guys, keep going. You're making a difference. You're having an impact. The love that you're showing is making a difference. You have the exact same potential. Our first step is to love other people. It's the loving your neighbors. It's loving your coworkers. It's loving that ref at your kid's game that keeps blowing every call. And if you call yourself a Christian, it starts with loving other Christians. Paul said, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love for God's people. AKA, I've heard about how you love other Christians. I heard about how you love the church. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came for the people that don't know me. I came to serve the people that hate me because God so loved the world. And then he says, hey, church, I'm giving you the exact same mission. You're going to do the same thing that I did. You're going to pick up the ball where I left off and go with it. But here's my question. How can we love people that don't know who Jesus is if we can't love the people who do? How can we love people that don't know Jesus if we don't love the people that do? This is step one in an act of faith. It's loving other believers if you're a Christian. I get it at times, this is hard. Everybody's got their issues. Nobody's perfect. At some point, everybody is unlovable. Some of you are more unlovable than others, and you know who you are, okay? I'm kidding. Was that mean? I mean, I'm just kidding. I'm in that, I'm there plenty of times. I'm, I am very unlovable. But that's step one. It's loving other people in this room. That's how faith gets worked out. Let me tell you a story of what that love can, can look at or look like. You may or may not know who Chuck Colson is. Colson was uh, Richard Nixon's right-hand man during the Watergate scandal. Um, at the time, Colson did not have a good reputation around Washington. He did Nixon's dirty work. He was, his nickname was Nixon's hatchet man. I mean, not a really great reputation that you want to have. None, none, none of us aspire to that, but that was Colson. So when the whole Watergate debacle goes down, Colson takes the majority of the fall. He gets sent to prison. But right be before he goes to prison, he gives his life to Christ. He becomes a Christian. He even has the opportunity to avoid jail time, but he doesn't do it. He's like, no, I'm going to take my sentence because those are the consequences for my actions. I'm going to take it. So then after he gets out of prison, he goes on to found one of the most impactful prison ministries in the world still today. Writes a bunch of books. A speaker that has encouraged, oh, Countless people. Some of you have been influenced by Colson, but that's not the part of the story I want you to hear. As soon as he goes to prison, his newfound faith in Jesus was severely tested right out of the gate. First, his wife didn't understand his new faith, didn't understand it at all. It created some serious, serious tension in their marriage. She didn't understand it. She didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. Why did you avoid jail time when you could have? What's this newfound character and conviction? It created a lot of tension. On top of the tension that's already going to be in a marriage when one of the spouses is in prison. And then after that, his son gets arrested on drug charges. 
And Colson can do nothing about either situation because he's sitting in a prison cell dealing with the life that comes with being in prison. So understandably, like he gets pretty depressed. But this is where God meets him, right in the middle of that misery. At the time, here's what happened. At the time, there was this group of Christians in Washington. Some of them were senators, some of them were congressmen, and they committed to praying specifically for Colson. One of them, uh, a guy named Congressman Al Cuey, found this law, discovered this old law, and, and I looked it up this week to see if it still existed, but I couldn't find it. At the time, Cuey found this law that allowed an innocent person to serve the prison term for a guilty person. So Cuey volunteered to serve out the remainder of Colson's prison term for him, for nothing. Does that not sound like Jesus? He did it for nothing. There was nothing he was going to get returned. There, were, there was no political advantage of this, not at all. Like Col Colson did not have a good rep at the time. Like why, why would you go to prison for that joker? He deserves everything that he's getting and then some. Like He wasn't getting any kind of political clout by doing that. The only reason QE offered to do it was just to show Colson love. That's it. That was authentic faith being manifested itself into love for another believer. That's how God met Colson right in the middle of his misery. That was a shot in the arm for his faith. He turned it down. Colson said, no, 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 I'm not going to let you serve my prison term for my consequences. But he, was, he experienced authentic love from another Christian, and that changed him. That pushed him forward. If that wouldn't have happened, who knows what would have happened to Colson as he sat helplessly and in depression in the middle of a prison cell. If he wouldn't have experienced that kind of love, would he have gone on to influence millions of people in and out of prison? Would he have gone on to write books and speak in conferences and start ministries? I've got some of his books on my shelf in my office. Would that have happened if he wouldn't have experienced love like that from another believer? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows the kind of impact you can have on the world by just loving one person? Well, yeah, Matt, I want to, I want to impact the world. I want to change the world. That's great. That's awesome. But I'm never going to have that wide of a reach. When people say, hey, you can change the world, you can impact the world, I think that's just nice rhetoric because 99.9% .9 of the world is never going to be able to impact the world or change the world. I think that's a lofty dream. Is it? I'm not so sure that it is. If you want to have a big impact, you got to want it. If you want to have a big impact as an individual as a, or as a church, you got to start small. Here's what we want to do as a church. Here's what, here it is. We want to do for the one what we wish we could do for the many. And then see what God might do with it. Do with one person what we wish we could do for many and see what would happen. This is what Paul is talking about. He's like, guys, keep going. Like your faith, your love, it is bearing fruit and it is transforming lives. Keep going. And it's all attached to one thing. He gives it in verse 4. He says, it all comes down to this. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for God's people. Here it is right here. Which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. That is the key right there. He's like, all this faith that gets worked out in action, all this love, all this fruit that is being produced is coming because you have a hope that is attached to heaven. When your life is transformed by the gospel, 
When it's changed by the good news that even though this world is a broken place with pain, misery, and suffering, even though every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, and now we're all destined to spend an eternity separated from God, Jesus steps in and he serves your sentence. He pays for the punishment of your sin by dying a miserable death on the cross. Not only does he pay for all of our sins, yours and mine, but then he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is, proving that he's got the power to do what he said he was going to do, proving that he's got the power to give you eternal life. Now, because of Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ, your destination is heaven. It's heaven. That's good news. That has changed lives. That's changed my life. That has changed many of your lives. That's going to change some of your lives in this room right now. And I cannot wait to see that happen. If you've given your life to Christ, you're heading towards heaven. Perfect, perfection, paradise. That changes the direction of your life right now because that's your destination. Because wherever you're heading to is going to direct your life and, and the outcomes that come from it. Go back to the road trip analogy. Man, if I'm, if I'm heading towards my favorite vacation spot, if that's my destination, is my attitude going to be good? And am I going to be more willing to help and serve other people just out of love? Yeah, I am. Because I'm pumped about where I'm going. I'm excited about where I'm going. I know that where I'm heading to is much better than my current situation, my current circumstances, and my current location. I've attached my hope to the place that I'm going is so much better, it's going to influence my current actions and my attitude. But if I'm going to the DMV <laughs> or Kansas, for that matter, <laughs> oh, I feel so isolated right now. I shouldn't have said that. It's a lovely state. It's a lovely state if you're from there. But if I'm going to a place that, man, I just don't want to go to. Or I'm not excited about it. Or I don't feel like that it's given me any kind of purpose or any kind of hope or promise of anything that's actually better. Am I going to be more willing to serve people just to be a blessing to them? Is my attitude going to be that much different than it is right now? No, probably not. Whatever your hope is attached to will determine the direction your life is going and what your life produces. Produces means attitudes and actions. So, what's your hope attached to and where are you going? Is your hope attached to the perfect promise of heaven? Or is it attached to something that can't even come close to comparing to what God has reserved in heaven for those who love him? Eugene Peterson, he translates this verse about faith, hope, and love like this. I think this is so good. He says, the lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack. Tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. Man, I love that. What a picture that is. I mean, it's because of the hope that we have in heaven. Not only do we have destination, now we are, our lives have purpose. Here's how we could translate it for application right now. Your purpose is directed by what your hope is attached to. This is true for everyone. Christian, atheist, Jew, agnostic, Muslim, whoever you are, your purpose in life is directed by what your hope is attached to. For the Christians in Colossae, their hope was attached to heaven. 
So their purpose was reaching as many people as they possibly could with the gospel because heaven is a part of the gospel. Because of that, there there was a byproduct of active faith and love that just poured out and transformed lives. Epaphras was just a normal dude. He wasn't an all-star. He wasn't an apostle or some guy that wrote 50 Christian books. He wasn't preaching at conventions and, and conferences. He wasn't Billy Graham. He was just some normal dude that told people he knew about Jesus and that transformed lives. We have the the letter that that Paul writes to the Colossians here today that can speak to us and shape us. The Colossian church was established and came into existence because some dude named Epaphras almost 2,000 years ago just told somebody he knew about Jesus. Because his hope and his purpose was attached to heaven. People hear about the great news from people. Don't ever underestimate the impact and influence you can have just by telling one person you know about Jesus. And if that's intimidating, just start small then. Just invite them to church. Telling one person you have no idea what it can do. Just like it takes a single spark to start a forest fire, it takes a single conversation or a single act of love that can start a cycle that transforms generation after generation after generation. You think Epaphras thought 2,000 years ago by telling his friend or, or doing this one act of love that it would start a cycle that would transform lives for two millennia? I doubt it. Don't ever underestimate the influence and impact you can have. Do for the one what we wish we could do for the many. Well, what we want to do for the many, we want to serve as many people as we possibly can. We want to reach as many people as we possibly can with the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We want to see as many cities and communities transformed. We want to see as many relationships restored as possible. We want to see as many families and generations transformed that starts a cycle. We want to do so many things to bless so many people. So all those things, do those many things to one person and see what happens. Your purpose is attached to whatever your hope is. And that's also going to bring out certain results in your life. If my purpose is attached to politics. If that's what my hope is attached to, then what's my purpose really going to be and what kind of results is it going to produce? Now, if my hope is attached to the political world, my hope, then I haven't met a whole lot of people that their hope is attached to politics. They're not the people that I usually want to hang out with at cookouts. I don't, I don't know about you or not. Now, I don't want to paint too broad of a brush, but it's usually not someone that's known for their joy and their patience and their kindness. No, if my hope is attached to politics, usually the results are fear and frustration, not not faith and love. Is your hope attached to another person? All right, well, what's your purpose then? Is Is it that person? Okay, well, what happens when that person's gone? What happens when that person hurts you or disappoints you? What happens? I mean, we should absolutely invest in relationships, no question at all. But if my hope is attached to another person, eventually that's just going to end up in pain and disappointment. Is your hope attached to money? What's your purpose then? What results is that producing? Is your hope attached to pleasure? What's your purpose? What results is it producing? Is your hope attached to the, the Broncos? Is that too soon? That too soon? I'm pulling for the orange, I promise. It's just not looking good right now. You see where I'm going with this? 
Whatever your hope is attached to is going to determine your purpose and it's gonna determine certain results in your life. So every, one, every single one of us has to evaluate ourselves. What's my hope really in? What direction is it taking me? What purpose has it given me? Am I okay with that? What kind of fruit is it producing in me and around me? Is it producing the kind of fruit that's heard about? Not from my own recognition or not from my own ego, but people are hearing about how God is transforming my life, bearing fruit in my life, and then using that fruit to change, transform, and bless other people. Because that kind of word spreads, and it spreads encouragement and hope. So I'm going to ask everybody one more, one more time. What's your hope attached to? Where's it taking you? Where's it taking you? Man, the hope of heaven is an anchor that will not shift. It won't shift. It will never give slack in the lines in your life that are meant to give you purpose. Never slack. So if that's what you're looking for, come on. Let's go. And you belong. This, is, this place is for you. This church has attached our hope to heaven. We've attached our purpose to heaven, which means we want to tell as many people as we possibly can about the good news, how Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead, and that changes everything for everybody. Hopefully that produces an act of faith and love in all of our lives. I hope LifeBridge is known for a place that good grief. The people that come here and then when they leave just exude love, exude humility, exude joy. We should be the most joyful people on the planet. I hope that's what happens. We want to tell as many people as we possibly can because our purpose has transformed us. Really what we're trying to do, part of our purpose, we want to depopulate hell and overcrowd heaven. That's what we want to do. We're going to mimic today the place we're going to tomorrow. What I want, what I really hope today, this is a big picture for us as a church. This is so big on my heart. I hope that every single weekend when people come into this building and then Monday through Saturday when you're out there, I hope the people that come in contact with our church, they get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. That's a big picture for us as a church. When they walk in these doors, they get a glimpse of heaven. <clears throat> when they meet you out in the marketplace, when they meet you out in your neighborhood, when they meet you in the office, when they meet you at the, at the football field, do they get a glimpse of heaven? When they come into your home, do they get a glimpse of heaven? That's one of the things that we want to do for the one that we wish we could do for the many. It's part of our purpose, all right? Now let me pray. God, thank you so much for giving us hope in heaven. I, I cannot wait to see what you got for us, what you have reserved there. And Father, because we live in a world that is broken and there's pain and there's suffering, sometimes it's really easy for me to lose, lose, lose track of that hope. I get so caught up in my present circumstances that I forget where I'm going. Father, I pray that you would make the reality of a hope in heaven clear to all of us. No matter where we're at, there's people here that are following and tracking with you. There's people in here that, that have never heard the gospel, that, have, that are skeptical of you or they've been hurt by the church or whatever. Father, I pray that all of us would put our hope in your son Jesus and our hope in heaven and that that would birth out faith that acts and love. God, we know that's your will. Would you use our church as a place where people could just get a glimpse of heaven? And would you show us a glimpse right now? We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.